By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning and welcome to our online service of Christ the King Anglican Church Toronto. Next Sunday, Keith will return us to our series in the book of Hebrews. But today I am speaking on another Old Testament passage that the book of Hebrews draws on. Our text this morning from God's Word is Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 19, the binding of Isaac. Please have your Bibles handy. We'll get there in a moment. A lot of people, including a lot of Christians, have real problems with this passage. A friend of mine said of Genesis 22, some passages should be taken out of the Bible. I know she is not alone in this sentiment. There is a very long history of people solving their difficulties with the Bible by revision. But whatever we may think about the binding of Isaac, it is clear that the rest of Scripture in both the Old and New Testaments and also history, see this text as very significant. At dinner on Friday night, both my husband and my son were commenting that it seemed funny, as in funny strange, that I would be preaching on this passage on Father's Day. Actually, I didn't realize that June 21st was Father's Day until well after plans for today's scripture reading were in place. So when Gary and Zach said this, at first I thought, oh no, what am I doing? But as I reflected more about this, I realized, no. Apart from the fatherhood of God himself, no figure in scripture is more closely associated with fatherhood than Father Abraham, the patriarch of the patriarchs, the father of the three great monotheistic world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And no story in the 12 plus chapters in Genesis about Abraham is more defining than this one that comes at the climax of the journey of faith of Abraham, the man of faith. Let me give you a little uh, of the historical significance of this passage about the binding of Isaac. First, for the Jewish faith, Mount Moriah, where the events of this account take place, is where Jerusalem will later be. When David became king and unified the tribes of Israel, he captured Jerusalem and made it his capital city. 
And at the end of our series in First and Second Samuel, back last year, you may remember the story of David inciting God's wrath by taking a census. As a result, a plague comes on the people so that 70,000 die, but God commands his angel to stop the plague at a place. And David builds an altar at that place, which is identified as the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. This place was the top of Mount Moriah. And this is the place where David instructed Solomon to build the temple. So right up until today, Mount Moriah is none other than the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem. Second, for Christianity. Genesis 22 is one of the texts that is traditionally read in Christian services on Good Friday. And the oldest Good Friday service is the Via Dolorosa, the Way of the Cross. It's an ancient Christian pilgrimage through the streets of the old city of Jerusalem. It claims to trace the route that Jesus carried the cross to the place of his crucifixion at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In the Middle Ages, this church was protected by the Knights of the Temple Mount, also known as the Knights Templar. Third, for Islam. Did you know that after Mecca and Medina, Jerusalem is the third holiest site for Islam? Whether you have been to Jerusalem or not, you've probably seen pictures of the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, where Orthodox Jews and many other people go to pray. Well, that wall is the retaining wall of the Temple Mount Courtyard, where the temple once stood. But what is or what has been on top of that courtyard since the year 700 A.D.? are an Islamic shrine called the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. If you see pictures of the old city of Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock is that building with the golden dome. Now, many things are claimed of the rock that is inside that dome, but one of them is that it is the rock on which Abraham was going to sacrifice his son. Except in Islam, it is claimed that the son was Ishmael, the first son of Abraham by Sarah's maidservant Hagar and the father of the Arabs, rather than Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, through whom the Jews descend. Further, it is said in Islam that Ishmael did not need to be bound because Abraham explained everything to Ishmael and Ishmael willingly hopped up on the rock to be sacrificed. Wow. (laughs) We uh, moderns and postmoderns are aghast at the idea of God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But clearly the founders of Islam thought it was an honor for Isaac. So they sought to replace him in the story with their own man and represent Ishmael as so honorable and willing that he did not even need to be bound. 
Anyway, if you're ever wondering why Jews, Christians, and Muslims all seem to be on top of one another in the tiny little confines of the old city of Jerusalem, wonder no more. It has a lot to do with our text for today. We are looking at Genesis 22 today in support of our series in the book of Hebrews. So by way of a little review of things that uh, Keith covered three months ago, please uh, turn in your Bibles first to Hebrews chapter 6. At the beginning of chapter 6 of this written sermon we call the book of Hebrews, the pastor has been rebuking his readers for their spiritual regression. He jolts them awake by his dire warning. Then the pastor exhorts his readers that if instead of being sluggish, that they would be, as it says at the end of verse 12, imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. That is the promise of salvation. Life with God in a place. And then the pastor, pastor starts talking about that promise originally made to Abraham. And in verse 15, he says of Abraham that he, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So Abraham is an example of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise of salvation. And when Keith preached on this, he argued persuasively that it was this story from Genesis 22 that is in view as the pastor discusses these things. To see this, look at verse 17 and 18. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's the pastor's readers and us, the unchangeable character of his purpose that he absolutely keeps his promise of salvation. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge to the throne of grace might have strong encouragement that is confidence, assurance, to hold fast to the hope set before us, that is to have endurance in our faith. What are the two unchangeable things on which we can stake all our confidence so we can, with faith and patience, keep on running the race that God has set before us? The two unchangeable things are two oaths of God. <clears throat> the first oath is the oath from the end of our Genesis 22 passage that we will turn to in a moment. The oath that confirms the promise of salvation first made to Abraham. And the second oath is the one we talked about last week in Psalm 110. The oath made to Jesus on our behalf that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So turn in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 19, that Holly read for us this morning. We're going to skip to the end first to look at this all-important oath. Then we'll go back and look at the rest of the passage. So go down and look at verses 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, And have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of or the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. After Abraham and Isaac's harrowing experience is all over, the Lord, through his angel, declares that by himself he has sworn this oath, confirming the promise of salvation to Abraham. Now, remember last Sunday from Psalm 110 that the first verse of that psalm was an oracle of God inviting the Messiah to sit at his right hand. And the fourth verse was an oath that God had sworn to Messiah that he is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, again, in these verses from Genesis 22, we have the same Hebrew words for an oracle of God and an oath of God as appeared in Psalm 110. In the case of the word for an oracle or an utterance of God, here in this passage is the very first time this word is used in the Old Testament. And as I said last week, it is used very rarely before the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah. So when it is used, it really stands out. In the case of the word for oath, Here in this passage is almost the first time it occurs in the Old Testament, and certainly the first time it is used of an oath of God, the first time God uses it to swear an oath. The combination of these special words for an oracle and an oath of God in this foundational passage in Genesis shows us why their combination in Psalm 110 is so significant. Looking now at the content of the oath, God confirms the promises he has made to Abraham before in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 to bless and multiply the offspring of Abraham that they would inherit the promised land, and to extend his blessing to all the nations of the earth. The word offspring occurs three times in verses 17 and 18, but there is some question about whether it is uh, plural or singular in each case. Obviously, the idea of um, Abraham having many descendants through Isaac is central to this promise, 
as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Um, the first instance in the, uh, of the word offspring in verse 17 speaks to this. But for a few different reasons, the other two uses of the word offspring seem to speak of a unique offspring. Uh, the offspring, um, in particular in verse 18, is a unique offspring in whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. The Apostle Paul makes, uh, makes this point clear in his letter to the Galatians uh, and says that this unique offspring is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews also understands this unique offspring to be Jesus. And the blessing he will extend to all the families of the earth is the invitation to salvation, to, by faith and patience, inherit the promise. One more thing to say about this oath. Remember when Keith preached on God's oaths that he said they include both a verbal part, the promise, and a tangible part that guarantees the fulfillment of the whole promise. The book of Hebrews says in one of the verses that we reviewed a moment ago um, that having waited patiently, Abraham received the promise. Yet, as Keith pointed out, Abraham clearly did not, before he died, receive all the things God promised him. But he did receive Isaac back when God called off the sacrifice of Isaac and provided a ram instead. Receiving Isaac back was the tangible part of God's oath that guaranteed everything else will follow. Let's go back now and look at the whole passage. Right off the top, verse 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham. But although we read that this was a test, Abraham did not know it was a test. All Abraham knows is that out of the blue, God commands him in verse 2, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. We can only imagine how distraught Abraham must have been. But the Bible records no protests or questions. It seems that Abraham who has walked with God for some 35 or so years now, knew the command was from God. The same God who had miraculously given him Isaac in the first place. The same God who had promised to make him a great nation by Isaac. And so, although it boggles the mind, Abraham responded in obedience. It's important to see Abraham's radical obedience in the context of his faith in God. Obedience is not a virtue if the one to whom it is given demands unlawful, immoral, or otherwise wicked behavior. For example, 
There was a whole lot of obedience given in Nazi Germany in the 1930s as thousands of disciplined and sober young men saluted and goose-stepped their way to unspeakable evil. Abraham's obedience was not the conscience-suppressing obedience of a Gestapo officer who will later claim he was just following orders. Neither did Abraham mistake some satanic voice for the voice of God. Abraham knew God. He knew God's voice. He also knew God as supreme over everything and everyone, the one who gives life and the only one whose prerogative it is to take life. It is in the context of knowing and trusting God that Abraham obeyed this outrageous command. The next morning, Abraham loaded up his donkey with provisions and wood for the sacrifice and set out with two servants and his son Isaac. On the third day, he left the two servants to wait, saying to them in verse 5, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Notice that Abraham says, we will worship, and we will come back to you. He seems to anticipate that God will yet intervene or miraculously give his son back to him. But in obedience, he continues with the order he has been given. Abraham and Isaac make the final ascent up Mount Moriah alone together. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, So the two of them walked on together. Then look at the end of verse 8. It also says the same thing. So the two of them walked on together. And between these identical sentences, there is this poignant little exchange between son and father. Isaac says, Behold, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. When the time comes and God still has not intervened in any way, Abraham proceeds to lay the wood in order, bind his son, and prepare to kill him. Only at the last possible moment does the voice from heaven stop him, saying in verse 12, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Only now does Abraham learn that this was a test. And with great relief for both Abraham and Isaac, God does indeed provide an animal instead of Isaac for the burnt offering. And Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide. Then comes the oath that we already looked at. So what was this test about? 
Two things are evident from the text itself, and a third requires our New Testament insights. The two things from the text are that this was about fearing God and obeying God's voice. In verse 12, we see that Abraham passed this test because, as the Lord said, speaking through his angel, Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And at the end of verse 18, we see the further reason, because you have obeyed my voice. These two things, fearing God and obeying his voice, come down to this. What comes first in our hearts? To see this in Abraham's case, take out the part of the story we really get hung up on, the part about Abraham having to kill his son. What if giving Isaac back to God just meant sending him far away to live in a monastery where Isaac would die with no descendants? What would this loss mean to Abraham? He would lose the blessings God had repeatedly promised him over the many years since God called him. Isaac was the embodiment of God's promises to Abraham. Isaac represented God's blessing of Abraham. Isaac was Abraham's legacy. Looking at things this way, we see that God was testing Abraham to see what or who was most important to Abraham. Was it God's blessing, represented by Isaac, or God himself? To put it another way, what was stronger for Abraham, his fear of losing Isaac or his reverent fear of the Lord? That Abraham did not withhold Isaac from God proved that now, after all these years of walking with God, no one and nothing came before God in Abraham's heart. You know, we take monotheism, excuse me, monotheism for granted. But in Abraham's time, pagan gods were dramatically different from who the Lord is. And pagan worship was dramatically different than how Abraham had come to know and trust the Lord by this point in his journey. The way Abraham has come to worship the Lord and serve him only is best illustrated by the words of the Shema that to this day Orthodox Jews recite several times a day. These words are from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That the Lord is one is not a contradiction of the Trinitarian nature of God. It is a statement that the Lord is the one, unique, worthy of all our love, trust, worship, and obedience.
Okay. So it was a test. And Abraham passed the test, and Isaac stayed in one piece. But we are still left with the question, why did God put Abraham through this high-stakes charade? Weren't there other more ethical ways to test the faith of Abraham than risking Isaac's life? A closer inspection of this story reveals that God accomplished more by drawing Abraham and Isaac into this harrowing drama than just to test Abraham's faith. Without knowing it, Abraham and Isaac act out a scene that foreshadows the climax of God's redemptive plan 2,000 years before it will happen. <clears throat> I'm talking about Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection. By way of conclusion, I offer these comparisons. Isaac is the embodiment or the incarnation of God's promise to Abraham. He is the promise made flesh. Jesus is the incarnation of God himself, the word made flesh. Before Abraham and Isaac walked together up Mount Moriah, verse 6 says this, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. So Isaac carried the wood on which he was to be sacrificed to the place of sacrifice. And Jesus carried the wood of the cross on which he would be sacrificed to the place of his crucifixion. And as we saw earlier, this place is significant. Mount Moriah will later be known as Mount Zion or the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Isaac was to be sacrificed in this place, and Jesus gave his life sacrificially very close by. On their walk together, Abraham responds to Isaac's question about the lamb for the sacrifice by saying in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb. And in Jesus, God provided exactly this. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only God himself in Jesus could be the perfect, sinless, sacrificial Lamb capable of defeating sin and death once for all on the cross. It is clear from Isaac's exchange with Abraham that he did not know he was to be the sacrifice. Who knows how he reacted when he found this out? But the account does not record any screaming or yelling. So in this way, the account, again, points to Jesus, who went silently and willingly to the cross. Abraham loves his son. And yet at the command of God is willing to surrender him, despite the obvious grief this entails. He is like God the Father who did not spare the son he loves, but gave him up for us. And lastly, when God intervenes at the last possible moment to preserve Isaac's life, 
It is for Abraham and Isaac like a resurrection. Indeed, uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 will speak of this event as a kind of resurrection by which Abraham received Isaac back from the dead. And receiving Isaac back was for Abraham the tangible guarantee that God will fulfill all the rest of what he promised. In Jesus' resurrection from the dead and ascension to the throne of heaven, we also have received the tangible guarantee that God will fulfill all the rest of what he has promised. May we therefore take strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Amen.